I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the true and real conversations from the fringes of classical music. Happy How Pride are you doing month. today? Oh, you're going to beat me. <laughs> I was going to wish you a happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month to you, Garrett. What does Pride mean to you as far as what we're talking about in June and gay pride and all that sort of thing? I'll be honest with you. It means little. <laughs> now, wait. Now, okay. let, let me explain. I mean, I know that it's going on and all that, but... Um, I, I haven't attended a, a, a Pride celebration since it's been more than 10 years. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you about my very first Pride. So I was, oh, I was probably 20 years old. Um, I was, uh, you know, working at a bar, you know, in uh, undergrad. It was a Saturday. And all of a sudden the traffic on the road stops. And then I see like, uh, like the police blocking off like intersections and stuff mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there's a parade and I'm like okay there's a parade I didn't know about and slowly I'm beginning to notice that there's something peculiar about this parade in particular and I was like oh so this is like a gay pride parade okay that's that's fun so uh, the next year I was sure to like you know get off of my part time job and uh, and ever since if I'm somewhere that has a pride going on um i try to at least go down and you know participate in the festivities and be seen and see who's mm-hmm. there just just as a way to you know show uh my you know solidarity my solidarity solidarity you know toward a community that i'm a part of you know and that we can all be part of as, as allies but it's true that over time that this has just become a more uh, mainstream event. Yeah, it used to be sort of, you know, I, I I, mean, can you imagine a gay pride parade in Omaha in 19, you know, 53 or whenever you were a kid? <laughs> <laughs> Again. <laughs> or whatever. I was 19- born in 1970. Okay, so, okay, a gay pride parade in Omaha, Nebraska in 1985. 80- like, what, what would that have even been like? Uh, it would have been like a block long. It probably would have been over in 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a very conservative part of the country, you know. And and that was a more conservative time, but... It's true. Um, but I'm sure Omaha has a very fabulous gay pride parade and, and festivities uh, this time of year. It's much more pronounced now, but I mean, it's not it's not going to get anywhere close to like what we have here in the Twin Cities. I mean, it's a major event. Yeah, and I didn't have a chance to go last year because... Uh, I was out of town, but I, but I did happen to be where I was down in Arkansas during their Pride festivities. So you know, June is Pride Month all around the country, all around the world. So uh, wherever you are listening from, I hope that you will take uh, advantage of it. Go you know to the beer garden or whatever happens at your local Pride festivities, <laughs> and uh and go have a gay old time as <laughs> as, as it's been said. <laughs> now you you come from the world of theater, Scott. So yeah. you've uh. <laughs> you've seen a you've seen a gay person or two or three. Um, they, yeah, I mean, and I'm the co-founder of a of a theater group in Omaha that yeah. um, just lost its space last year. They're looking for a new space, but 25 years in one spot. Um, yeah, I was uh, around gay people all the time, gay and lesbian people. Um, and when you're backstage and you're getting ready to go out, if you have a costume change or something. Uh, you are going to be naked in front of other people, and it's just part of it. You yeah. know, it was uh, just oh, there's a naked person. It wasn't sexualized at all. We were all part of a production, and we were trying to be as professional with it as we could. So, you it, know, it was there. This this reminds me of a question um, 
that a lot of people have asked me over the ages, and I'll ask you, how old were you when you realized you were not gay? <laughs> or, you know, because the question is always, well, when did you know you were gay? Well, when did you know that you weren't gay? You know, that, um, that's always my response. I, I can tell you, you're going to laugh. Um, oh, okay. It was during a. Uh, I, I was watching an ep with my family. I was watching an episode of Charlie's Angels, and uh, the episode okay. where Jacqueline Smith had to go undercover. Uh, uh, she was like a, a, a swimsuit model, and that is when I realized <laughs> something. Something about what you saw made a little sense. I had. I thought something was wrong. <laughs> I, I thought I was going to have to go to the hospital. I called okay, my let's dad. Let's not get too graphic. Yeah, I thought something was wrong. <laughs> You know, uh, my <laughs> that's really that tickles me. You know, my um, my my moment <laughs> like that was uh, while watching. I'm sure I was much younger than you were, but I mean, I remember being five or six years old watching reruns at that point of A Different World. Do you remember that show? No. Um, it, it was a show about a, a, an HBCU, kids on a, a black college campus. Mm. And um, everyone who knows that show will remember a character named Ron Johnson. There was a, a locker room scene and he came out the showers without his shirt on. And yeah, it made, a whole, it. It made a whole lot of sense to me. Mm. So, um, so ever since then, I have uh, been very proud in the way I identify um, as is Mr. Jonathan Gibbs, who I spoke with um, a few weeks ago in New York um, and who's featured in this episode of uh, Triloquy. You guys talk about uh, you dropped him off at the airport. Mm -hmm. Yeah, years for, ago. For his move. And he talked about going to New York like a lot of people. You find yourself. Yeah. You know, you discover things about yourself. And it seems to be sort of, a, you know, a trope at this point, you know, to go to New York and become an artist or become an actor or become a whatever. But, you know, I will say that Jonathan really did move to New York and and he did find himself, you know, his his levels of, uh, you know, what he does outside of his uh, work work as far as creating uh, his podcasts and, and other media for for YouTube and all this other stuff. You know, it's really grown since he's moved to New York and I'm really proud of him and uh, it was an honor to uh, for him to you know set us out the time to speak with me one of the interesting things that uh, you guys brought up like pride sort of transitioning uh to more of a mainstream cultural event like we have it today um when he started singing in the new york gay men's chorus mm -hmm. uh it was all about the g you know in the lgbtq yeah right and that it's still that way and that they're trying to be more inclusive within the LGBTQ community. Right. And for so long, you know, LGBTQIA as it is right now. What's you know, the I and the A? So I is uh, intersex. Okay. And um, A is asexual. A person who is intersex is uh, some someone, as far as I understand, whose insides physically don't necessarily match their outsides. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, there are a lot of people who just don't find sexual attraction. That's just not a part of their life, you know. Um, but yeah, for, for so long, you know, all of that has been conflated into, you know, culture and, um, and uh, initiatives specifically pointed toward gay men, you know, and I'll go as far as to say gay, gay white men. And that's what me and Jonathan talk about a little bit uh, in this interview, specifically how 
it manifests itself in the New York City Gay Men's Chorus as this group that was founded as a response to all of the inequity being showed toward the uh, queer community and how in 2019, you know, it just might be time for, you know, this idea of a gay men's course to be expanded um, and to be a little bit more inclusive of the community it was built to, you know, protect and to celebrate. He talked about, you know, but there's still issues at work here that we see uh, outside of the gay community in that when the ensemble was putting together a program and there would be one piece by a person of color mm-hmm. that that was for some reason cause for excitement like we got oh we got one yeah and you know the and and the point I uh, and and again he he Jonathan does a really great job of, of talking about that in particular but if I, if I can give any sort of prelude to that conversation it's that even within um, the conversation of of uh, the queer communities, LGBT, whatever, you know, race is a part of that. You you just can't separate that. And a person's, um, you know, the intersections of being black and being gay and in Jonathan's case, being multiracial, you know, all manifesting in, in ways that are really unique to him. And, um, and, and he explores that in the work he does with the chorus, his other media work and, and everywhere in between, you know, those intersections, can't be erased and I always find it really interesting how you know I'll sit down with someone and you know the conversation will kind of go to a race because there's no escaping that no matter what other communities you are uh, a part of or identify with well how about we get into the conversation and see what Jonathan has to say Jonathan Gibbs it's it's been it's been too long not really because we just recorded a whole hour and a half of content well, 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 we did. So to, to start, to start, tell, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your podcast and what makes it unique and, and, and what you're trying to do with it. Uh, well, this QPOC Life or this QPOC Life, which is available on all platforms from Spotify to Google to Apple uh, Podcasts, um, is actually a continuation of the work that you and I started in 2012. A little project called Education. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure if you want your listeners to know about that because they will be Googling that so quick. <laughs> well, is it Googleable? It's, I don't think it is actually. I think I shut down education.com just last year um, after so many years. And, um, you know, and all the education, most of the education stuff is privated on YouTube because it was a YouTube show. Uh, but some things are actually still up. Nothing super problematic, but. On the recording that we just did, you know, we talked about uh, the evolution or the growth that one experiences through uh, in the queer community and the terminology that we use and, uh, you know, just how we express ourselves and view others. Yeah, that you know, that's really the main reason why educa- education had to go bye-bye because, you know, we were using some language that was a little outdated, but we were doing our best, to be honest. So we weren't, yeah, I wasn't purposefully trying to yeah, be problematic. Yeah, I don't think that it had to go away because of that. I just think that, um, oh, you meant like, not be- not that we stopped it because we were being problematic, but because we've had to lock the Disney vault, so to speak, <laughs> uh, on a lot of those conversations. Only because... Not everybody, especially in progressive thinking and on the cutting edge of, uh, you know, the the forefront of coming up with language and being respectful and inclusive and equitable to all people, 
will be so forgiving or view the evolution of a person. We talked about it on the interview that we just had, more like the talk that we just had about cancel culture and how you have to kind of be proactive sometimes in um, making sure that the things that you say, I won't say are hidden because I can stand by the things that I've said. Yeah, yeah. And I can explain my growth and I can show how I've grown. And I can also admit and show you that I've said, I've used certain language and I used to think certain ways, um, but n- that now I am different. And that's that's basically uh, this QPOC life in a nutshell, I guess. It's just the continuation of that earlier project. Well, yeah, and congrats to all of the really special attention this QPOC life is getting. Great podcast. And, of course, um, the, the show formerly known as Education <laughs> isn't the, the only connection um, we have. So, uh, one, you know, one thing I kind of wanted to talk about was your evolution um, as a New Yorker. I guess, you know, 10 years is the official number to be a New Yorker. You're, you're seven at this point, right? Yes, and I used to think that that was absurd because I was like, well, I've lived here for three years or I've lived here for five. I know how it is. But there really is a special, I feel like as I am approaching 10 years, I'm starting to realize why 10 years is the base minimum for being a true New Yorker. You have to have lived through the gentrifying of a neighborhood. You have to have lived through finding a, a favorite spot and then it being gone because they couldn't afford rent anymore. You have to live through seeing a neighborhood completely transformed, like I said, with gentrification, or even just seeing friends come and go as they are elevated in their career um, and view the changing landscape that is New York. It, it doesn't stay the same for long. And 10 years is a good span of time to be able to say, yes, I have seen that. Yeah. So, so let's rewi- rewind to, um, to day one. So, you know, we were uh, both living in Memphis. I uh, dropped you off at the airport and you began your new life. When you, when you landed in um, whichever airport you landed, do you remember which airport? LaGuardia. So when you landed in LaGuardia, day one, you leave the airport, you're in your new city. Pa- paint that picture for me. What was that like? So luckily for me, I, and so I have to acknowledge the privilege that I have in, you know, I, in, in some of the advantages that I had in moving. At the same time, I was also determined to do it. I had come to New York the year prior, 2011, and on my birthday, uh, while I was out here, June 24, uh, New York passed marriage equality. So that was that night, and I was like, oh, this is a sign. Maybe I need to come out here. And this was before, you know, the national recognition. Before, yeah, I think the national one, I think, came 2012, the very next year with President Obama. Something like that, yeah. Something like that. And, um, you know, that experience in 2011, that visit made me see that this was a place that I wanted to be, that things were going on here, uh, as opposed to living in Memphis, where I was definitely yearning for something different. I remember when I worked in retail, just jumping in my car on a Sunday afternoon and just riding around because I wanted to explore. New York is a perfect place for that, to be able to explore, to find not only new physical locations, but also, this is going to sound sappy, but find yourself. And now, and that's what I was going to say. It sounds like you came here to find yourself. But 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 again, talk to me about day one. So yeah. you you leave LaGuardia and and what? So what actually, I, I'm still at LaGuardia, and I was giving all that preamble to uh, set up the fact that 
Uh, luckily, I had met someone on Craigslist back before it got way of too dangerous. Of all websites. So of all websites, <laughs> I was looking and I found somebody who was looking for a roommate. I didn't end up going with him, but he had a 901 area code, which is oh, the Memphis, yeah, Memphis area yeah. code. So well before I even, like between 2011 and 2012 when I moved in June, uh, this person, his name is Kenny, he came, he's from Memphis, so he was like, hey, you know, before you move, like, let's hang out at, um, what's the name of that place in Memphis that was, it wasn't queer, but it was very... Oh, you're talking about Molly Fontaine. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was, but it was a house with multiple levels. But the gays were there. The gays were there. And uh, so we met there, and ironically enough, he's straight. But he let me stay with him for a whole week before my roommate situation got settled. Um, and the lease was new and, you know, I could move in and stuff. Oh, so you didn't leave the airport and go to your new apartment. No, you I went, went to Kenny's. Kenny's. Oh, okay. Um, and the way I got there was I got to baggage claim and I learned that people are just there to like try to get you into their cab. At least back in 2012 they were, cause this was before the rise of Uber. Um, and people were really hustling in baggage claim to be like, Hey, you need a ride? $40. I'll take you anywhere. So I got into one of these big black SUVs and here I am living my New York life on day one, June 5th, 2012 and, um, pulled up to Kenny's house and was a new young person, uh, not too young, mid-20s. I think I was 27 or 28 when I moved out here. And um, just looking forward to a new life. And, and you had your, um, your job and stuff lined up. Oh, right. That's a whole other thing, right? I was super lucky to be able to work with the company that I worked with and was able to find a transfer, which is what enabled me to say, yes, I want to do this. So, yeah, super lucky in that sense as well. And actually spent a whole week kind of familiarizing myself because my start date was a week from the day I landed after the fifth. So I remember days of like getting orient, uh, going through my own self orientation of uh, MTA travel. That's the subway here. Right. And like figuring it out. And still weeks after getting there, I would still always panically look out the window to see what the next stop was. And then, okay, is this it? And then, okay, it's this many. And then eventually I just somewhere along the line, just, and became just, acclimated. Yeah, just just slowly got used to it. Yeah. So it, it seems like not too far after you had moved here, you got involved with the New York City Gay Men's Chorus. So interestingly enough, I moved here June 5th. So I'd moved here summer of 2012. And, you know, I didn't even really know about the New York City Gay Men's Chorus. But the first thing that I did being uh, having come up, uh, I went to an HBCU and have a deep appreciation for singing choral spirituals. The works of, you know, Moses Hogan, William Dawson, uh, Jester Hairston. Oh, William Levi Dawson is one of uh, y'all's composers. I, I didn't know of any of his choral works. I know of his Negro folk symphony. I don't know of Oh, his... yeah, he's got a lot of... Okay. He's, he's one of the... I wouldn't say... I You know, I used to know this because I was going to pursue uh, post-grad in ethno, quote, musicology, specifically the spiritual and black American history, uh, music history, but I don't, I don't think he holds a title. I'm not sure though. So I know this is airing on like yeah. <laughs> a very legitimate oh, oh, source. <laughs> but um, I don't think he's the father of like black music or the spiritual. I don't think he has that title. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, I really enjoyed singing that music. Um, and at the same time, and this will probably play into the deeper conversation. I wanted to be a part of a large organization. So. I mean, if you're a chorister out there and, you know, you've grown up singing in choirs, I don't, you know, when, you, when, you're, a, when you're an actor or a theater kid, you know, Broadway is the thing you want to do. Mm -hmm. If you are playing high school football, the pro NFL is what you want to do. 
if you're a chorister, you're watching YouTube videos or listening to recordings of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Right. And you're probably wanting to be in an ensemble that large. And not everybody, I'd say a great majority of choristers, don't ever get to be in that type of large ensemble. Even if you move to your local city, like I, when I lived in Memphis, I was part of the Memphis Symphony Chorus, but that was only at most 90, maybe 80 people, not even 100. So you wanted a really huge I ensemble. I wanted to be in a huge of. ensemble. So I was like, okay, I'm gay, I'm in New York, and I want to sing in a choir. So I typed in New York City Gay <laughs> Choir, and they and came what up. what popped up first? <laughs> New York City Gay Men's Chorus popped up first, and that was 2012. Uh, their audition process, you have to set it up via email. I emailed them, told them about my background with MSO as, I mean, MSC, Memphis, Memphis Symphony, Symphony Chorus. Yeah, Memphis Symphony Chorus. Yeah. Um, so MSC, I guess. Yeah, and then my time at Delta State University and my time at Rust College being like the student conductor there and stuff and letting them know that I have some... And you were the music director for a church. Oh, and also well. the music director for Asbury United Methodist Church in, uh, I think that's South Memphis? Yeah. No, not South Memphis. Or East uh, Memphis. East Memphis. Yeah. Uh, which is still going to this day. Uh, God bless them. Uh, uh, I miss them. And um, so, you know, I laid out my choral background. I got the uh, audition um, and I did not go. So that was... You so didn't go to the I audition. Did, I did not go to the audition. I don't know. I guess I got cold feet. So it wasn't until September 2013 that I auditioned and then got in. You know, it seems like with, you know, because in college you started as a music major and of course you have all of this professional experience. It seems like you would have considered yourself a little too, um, you know, no shade to anybody, but too qualified for uh, uh, this sort of community ensemble. It's interesting because the idea of New York City Gay Men's Chorus being a community ensemble it, it's, it's just a professional that. No, group. It, no, but it, it, it is a community ensemble and you know, but so is the Memphis Symphony Chorus. Right. But it's connected to the symphony of the city. So it's funny how, like, some people gauge it that way, including my 2012 self. But I remember going to the first few rehearsals and being like, oh, this is definitely more of a social club. I, again, grew up, you know, I love the spirituals, but the spirituals were only a part of the diet of the ensembles, including my historically black college university, where it was really Western choral music. Uh, I don't, can I say like white people music? Sure, of course. Um, that was the standard. So, you know, all the choral standards, and I'm not even going to begin to list them, but everything from the works of Handel to, you know, early 20th century choral music. Morton Lordson exactly. and John Rutter, all, all of those them, people. All of them. You know, you, we know who we're talking about when we say Western choral music. I'm familiar with all of it, and I've sung all of it, and I love all of it. Um, and my and the person I was in 2013 when I joined the chorus was very much centered on that white Western experience in what I was expecting from a large choral ensemble. I quickly realized that the New York City Gay Men's Chorus has a 40 year his, now 40 year history of being a space with a mission, and I don't think that until that point in my life had I ever really understood an organization that had a true mission and a foundation that was where music was this was only the excuse to be together right um and so very quickly i learned the importance of that community and i was able to trade in my mind compromise the musical excellence that i had come to expect growing up with with a certain level of standard that being that in a 
a professional community ensemble that's tied to a symphony orchestra or going to schools with a high reputation of choral excellence. And this is no shade to the New York City Gay Men's Chorus. It is a wonderful um, ensemble and has a great sound, no doubt about it. But the level of um, seriousness within the membership, um, it, it was not to the quote-unquote standard that I had set for myself based on that very white-centric experience. To some of your listeners, I already anticipate the pushback of being like, well, why does it have to be white when it's just professional? And I don't know how to answer that. Well, you know, it kind of speaks to, um, you know, representation um, in in music and in your case, choral music. You know, you have this deep passion and love for the Negro spirituals and all of that music, and you just weren't seeing that uh, really embraced by this group. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting, you know, to, to feel like you have a generate. Uh, I wonder if that phrase is correct, generational connection or, or just some sort of cultural connection, you know, because as black people, we naturally, you know, have, have a connection with the Negro spiritual. You know, they're Negro spirituals I learned just from being around my grandmother and my great-grandmother. And, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting that experience and wanting to experience that music. Sure, but at the same time, I want to backtrack there because I'm even talking from a higher standpoint of just choral standards. Like, and again, no shade to the New York City Gay Men's Chorus, but just like not talking in rehearsal or which I'm sure so lots of So for lack of, of a have. better word, you were looking for a more professional experience. Yeah, I was looking for a more, which ironically enough, I had, the reason I didn't go to that September 2012 audition is because I joined something called the collegiate chorus. Are you still involved with it? I was not because at that point we were doing like 21st century classical choral music and we were doing once again Handel's Messiah for the holiday concert and once again Haydn's and like uh, Creation for Spring. And I was at that point, it had been so many years and I realized I'm tired of this. <laughs> like I, there's only so many creations I can do. There are so yeah. many messiahs that I can do. And honestly, I wanted something different. So when I finally went in to get that different thing, then I was like, oh, God, is this what different (laughs) looks like? But I started to realize, like, I'm not going back to the thing that I said I was tired of. This is what the other side of the hill looks like. So so those first few New York City gay men's chorus rehearsals. Did you, um, were you immediately sold? Did, did you, did it take you a little time to, to get used to the more social aspect of it? Oh, it took a whole year because, you know, I don't know how deep we want to go into this, but again, as I said, there is a very tight sense of community where gayness is, um, involved and that's a very layered statement yeah i'm curious what you mean by that well you know within the queer world we just like with everything else things are very white centered um including representation in gay media and gay history uh and so and 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 that kind of manifests in this gay centric ensemble certainly which this ensemble was founded in the midst of the AIDS crisis in New York City, which happened in New York City, yeah, right? So um, I can't remember the name of the person who said it, but it was only said this year at 
Uh, and I think he's part of one of the gay and lesbian association or gala choruses. New York City is one of the gala choruses. San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus is one of the gala choruses. Turtle Creek is one of the gala choruses. So it must have been some conference somewhere, and I've been seeing it going around the internet. It was a queer person of color, I think black, and for the life of me, I can't remember what his name was. I hope we can do it in post. To, yeah, sure. To figure it out. But um, he said something along the lines of these gay, the gay chorus movement did not start because gays just wanted to get together. And I'm paraphrasing here. Did not want to get together and sing I am what I am. But they got, came together because we were in a moment of crisis. You know, and now I'm going off script here in terms of the quote. Uh, President Reagan was not acknowledging that AIDS was a thing. Uh, the general public was very dismissive of the epidemic. Gay people were being rounded up and raided. Um, transgender people you know, there were genital checks at bar raids and things like this. And so this group that I'm in was founded in response to that. So it wasn't necessarily a group looking for, you know... Uh, Choral excellence. The, yeah, the, I, I was going to say artistic excellence as much as just being a way for queer people to come to... Well, gay There's a political statement. Yeah, gay to, men to, to make come a together statement. and to be themselves, and they happen to sing. Right, yes. So... So how did those two worlds, you know, musical excellence and, you know, this this ensemble of protests, what does that look like today? Because a gay men's chorus isn't necessarily a sign of protest these days as it was back then, for sure. Very true. Um, you know, uh, and I have a friend who on my podcast, Zachary, made a very good point on a recent episode um, in this QPOC Life saying... You know, back in the 80s, in the 70s and the 60s, uh, before we were using queer to not mean an insult to right, someone as a different. Pejorative. Um, and before we came up with all the language like non-binary, gender non-conforming, trans, etc., um, everything was just under the umbrella of gay. So, and during the time, like I said, bar raids and transgender people were being pulled out and they were having their private parts investigated and then being persecuted if the clothes did not match the genitals. Um, you know, that was all a trans struggle, and the trans people were at the forefront of the movement. Uh, so it's, it stands to say what you just said, like, yeah, gay men were there, but now we're definitely just there, while who are the most oppressed still today? It's trans people, it's trans women of color, it's black trans women who are at an astronomically uh, high murder rate. So I think that within the overall gay choral movement in 2019, we need to change our mission statement. We need to, or at least reassess it. We say that we're for LGBTQ, but we solely cannot focus on the G, and that includes in our memberships. And, and that's what I was going to ask, you know, because as a group founded as, um, you know, a sort of protest um, against the opposition toward the entire LGBTQ community, you have this ensemble that just represents one of those letters and, um, and one of those genders associated with one of those letters. It, it doesn't seem totally inclusive, I hate to say. Yeah, well, for us at least, we can say that, well, I, I mean... Being trans, that, like, not me, but anybody who is trans, that's a whole process for people to come out as trans, if they so desire to do that. Um, but, you know, it's a whole layered discussion of, like, who do you let in 
And we do let people in. Like, we have because a cis- cisgender... That's what I was saying. Uh, we have a cisgender straight woman. woman yeah. We've had uh, a, a straight man in our uh, chorus. And, you know, uh, I feel like as long as... I've been in conversations with leadership and I've expressed, you know, as long as someone can sing the format of music which we are singing, which is tenor, tenor, bass, bass, or TTBB, it shouldn't be a question. Um and, you know, I think that we all have to, within the organizations, under the gala umbrella, I think that that is, we're kind of leaning on the side of, yeah, whoever you are, like, we should be able, you should be feel free to come in and do that. But are we putting off that, or are we, are, is that what we're transmitting? Is that what we're broadcasting when we say we're the New York City gay men's chorus? I think that there is an argument with people out there right now who are not in the ensemble and are observers asking, quote unquote, why, why does it have to be the gay men's chorus? And before, um, I would look at YouTube comments of some of the videos covering some of our performances on national TV, like after the Pulse nightclub shooting, uh, we were on Good Morning America, and some of the comments were along the lines of, well, why does it have to be a gay men's chorus? And at first I was like, well, what are they talking about? But as I've evolved even since those times, I realized, you know, we need to be more inclusive. We need to, we say that we're an LGBTQ organization, but are we really transmitting or broadcasting that everyone is welcome? But you know, that's a really interesting conversation because when I think about, you know, let's talk about, you went to an HBCU, okay? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people say that, you know, HBCUs are for black people exclusively. And there is, there's a, a historical precedent as to why that's the case, you know, and it seems so easy for an institution to be co-opted by a group that institution was not built for, you know. So I'm just wondering, again, how that conversation parlays um, into a group like the New York City Gay Men's Chorus. I mean, what, how, how does it serve the legacy of the group and what it stood for originally by letting everyone in? And that's not to say that I believe that everyone should not be welcome, but I'm, I'm just curious what you think about that. I think that's an interesting parallel because HBCUs, or historically black colleges and universities, were established in, in a time around the end of the Civil War. I know Rust was uh, started in 1866, and many others were, at the time, started by different freedmen societies and, uh, you know, Methodists. A lot of them are Methodists, strangely enough, but not all. And um, just people building up a space so that black people could go to school because there was no school that they could go to. Um, and we talk about the... Le- and at the same time, we're talking about the legacy of the New York City Gay Men's Chorus. And again, going back to the idea that gay was just an umbrella term that really meant any kind of queer, including trans people, because there's a mission statement or there is a message there to fight inequality, to, to fight for equity, to fight for inclusion. Um, you know, looking at both of those and then fast forwarding it to now, you know, black folks can go to PWIs or HBCUs um, there's, but there might still be a need for black people to have that available resource. But it does. I don't think that it means that you can't have white people mm-hmm. going to an HBCU anymore. Um, so is it just a matter of language? What would would you feel better if it was the New York City queer ensemble or something like that? Personally, I would. That would be fine. It wouldn't matter to me. And again, if but then how do you delineate? 
uh, TTBB or tenor tenor bass bass as the type of music, or should that be scrapped? Should it should it be an ensemble of all voice parts? Well, I mean, it was founded as an organization that sings tenor tenor bass bass, but what does you know, what is the relationship between voice and gender? Um, and, and, I, and I was just scribbling that down, you know, because it's, it's one of the unique things about uh, the instrument that is the voice. If you play the flute, there's no, you know, gender connected to that in the same way as a person who is a bass is probably a man, you know, or or some, you know, and, and, and even that language seems weird to me as, as I talk to you because... You could have a woman who there are women is a who bass. sing bass, yeah. Yeah. and there were you know back in I know that my dad talks about his mom, who lived in Mississippi, and there were a lot of they were all the Prather girls. They were recognized as like this quartet singing group, and Aunt Sula sang bass, and Aunt Teen sang soprano, and <laughs> Aunt Gloria sang uh, alto. And so they were like a fully fleshed out quartet group where a woman sang bass and they weren't transgender. They were, I mean, and they weren't queer. They were just, they weren't explained that like that to me. So also you have to remember that with especially members of the gender non-conforming, non-binary and trans community, there's a lot of dysphoria around the voice uh, if you are a well, well, before you describe that, what what do you mean by dysphoria? So just general anxiety around a part of yourself that you're not comfortable with. Mm. So for instance, if you are assigned female at birth or AFAB, um, and then you realize that perhaps you are trans man and you become a trans man, you know. Through I'm, I'm only talking at very high level, like not being in the very grid of it and only through talks with fellow artists who are trans. You know, you may be trans man and still be able, even after your therapy or whatever, or maybe you're not going through hormonal therapy, to sing like a soprano still. But you nece- you don't necessarily want to do that because it conjures up too much... Um, emotion or thought of who you were before you realized you were trans. And that is well well within the right of someone to say, no, I don't want to sing those notes. I don't want to sing that part. I know I have the range, but I don't want to do that Um, because we have to respect people for who they say they are and everything. Now, at the same time, I can't speak for a trans person, but I would, I think that it would be really advantageous to have that range but i also understand why you wouldn't want to do that yeah yeah and and that is a really difficult concept for me to wrap my mind around as well as someone who is not trans but you know as as a bastion of 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 queer um equity and justice you know I think it's important for the ensemble to, to recognize those sorts of things. It, it seems like a no-brainer almost. It's, it's, and I think that that is a constantly evolving um, discussion that is happening in the gay and lesbian association courses or the gala courses. Um, is there a New York City lesbians chorus or something, a, a women's chorus, a, a queer women's chorus? So I don't think there is. I know that there is the New York City gay men's chorus. I know that there is the Empire City Men's Chorale, so they're more, they're like the New York City Gay Men's Chorus, except they sing like high classical. They're like, they're, they are what the 
2013 version of me wished he would have gotten into. Yeah. But I'm very much glad that I've spent six going on seven years in the New York City Gay Men's Chorus because we did a joint concert with them one time. And child, it was exactly an affirmation of me saying why I wanted to leave the collegiate chorale and leave classical quote unquote music. Yeah. Um, I was just like, wow, this is boring. So how do you think the response to this conversation would be among some of your fellow choristers, you know, changing the name and, and being even more inclusive as an ensemble. I'm sure there are older members that really feel strongly about this being the group that it is, or, or maybe that, no, that's a wrong assumption. No, that would be a correct one. And it's, I think that that sense of ownership, you know, we still have founding members, and we still have... Peop- that's that's sort of incredible, though. It is, and we call them our charter members. And then we have people that are not quite charter members, but lived through the AIDS crisis. There was a time when the announcements for New York City Gay Men's Chorus included who was in the hospital, who had passed away. Just last night, um, it was our first rehearsal. Um, and I don't know if you uh, recognize times recorded, but it's early April. Um, and in June of 2019, at the end, it's World Pride in New York, as well as the Stonewall uh, Uprising 50th anniversary, yeah. kind of like the beginning of gay rights movement. Um, and so we're doing a concert at Carnegie Hall, which celebrates that. It's a commissioned work between um, uh, Gay Men's Course of Los Angeles and New York City Gay Men's Course, and is including ten, up to 10 other courses at Carnegie Hall on stage um, and highlights the history. Um, so people lived through that, and it was our first rehearsal last night, and after one movement that talked about the organization, um, it didn't specifically name them, but there was a time during the epidemic when the queer community or the gay community was not being heard that they organized a die-in at, I think, St. Peter's Cathedral in New York, um, where in the middle of a mass, a bunch of gay and queer people just went in and laid in the aisles. And that was a statement. And people that would not have paid attention otherwise were forced to look at this. So we sang a piece in the work um, Quiet No More, which was commissioned by us. And um, we had an open discussion after the singing of that particular piece that talked about that certain that particular incident because our artistic director said, oh, I'm noticing, you know, I'm seeing reactions among you. He's, st- he's standing up front looking at us and we're looking back at him. So let's have an open discussion. And I mean, it was truly like a therapy session where people were recalling being present in that moment. People are recalling living through that time. One person burst out into tears saying, you know, this would have been us had the medication not been better nowadays concerning HIV, Um, you know, and having lived through that. Another person said, you know, Every week I was going to a different funeral for a different friend at the age of 21, and you have no idea what kind of impact that has on a young person growing up and losing so many friends. Personally, I've already lost just one friend mm-hmm. at a young age just recently, like this late last year, and it's uh, devastating. So to see your entire friend group just drop off, all of that to say, I understand why, you know, during that time of crisis, a group coming together and then going on in through time, people would be very vehement in keeping it the name that it was founded under. And so I get it. But? But I also recognize that there is a continued struggle 
And again, I don't know if I'm, we've been talking so much that I don't remember if I've said who are the main people who are now suffering in the oppression, but it is, again, uh, you know, trans people, trans women of color, specifically black trans people who the murder rates are just off the charts. So just, you know, yeah. I mean, it makes me think about just as people evolve and times evolve, so does the struggle. So does and, the struggle. And the, and the queer struggle just looks different now. Right. And so I think that the organizations should also change in terms of what it looks like or what the mission statement says. Or in this case, I feel like the mission statement has always said that it's for LGBT people. We just recently added the Q and the I and the A, but it's always said LGBT, but we don't have lesbians right. in our in our in our group. And you know, I'm sure again, the whole discussion about voice and trans if they come out or not, we might have trans people in the course. I don't know, and that's not my business. But, um, it, I mean, are these conversations that are happening, uh, you know, w- within the organization, within the leadership of the organization? I'm sure among the leadership of the organization, especially at the higher umbrella organizational structures, I've seen, you know, um, uh, announcements or like maybe a newsletter go out and our own artistic director, Charles Beale, Dr. Charles Beale, um, is vice chair of the gala organization and has talked about trans voices and has written about um, the the uh, inclusion of trans voices and how to work. You can go to the gala website and see what they say about working with uh, trans voices as an artistic director or just as an organization. So they definitely have literature and they've they've definitely put out writing on how to work with uh, different types of voices in the queer umbrella. At the same time, they're like in Los Angeles. They have the Trans Voices Choir. Mm-hmm. I think that's. Uh, I think it's started by Our Lady J, who is a writer on Pose. You may know her from writing on that. Uh, started writing um, on the Amazon original Transparent, um, but we also claim her as a past accompanist for the New York City Gay Men's Chorus. So um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a discussion going yeah. on. And, and it's a discussion that I certainly would have never really thought about in, until you brought it up. I, I do hope that, you know, the oppressed does not become the oppressor, as it were, and that organizations like that become more inclusive. Because, you know, I, I would love to see, you know, as a, a vast diversity when I go to one of those concerts. And unfortunately, it's just not that yet. But the way you talk, it sounds like it's coming down the pipeline, hopefully at least. Hopefully it's coming down the pipeline. I just recently served as an artistic advisor for, um, in the spring, we have a show called Big Gay Sing, and it's a big old sing-along. It's familiar music, and for the six years that I've been in the course, it's always been like very white pop music. Mm -hmm. Um, And whenever they announce what the lineup is, 90% of the course is like, ooh, ah, yes. And I'm like, okay, like, yeah. Oh, we got one black song this time. You you just didn't feel and 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 I'm and glad I'm not feeling it. And I'm glad we transitioned this way. So you know, you mentioned earlier that you know when you first moved to New York, you were looking for that high classical experience and realized that what you found at the New York City Gay Men's Course was more your speed. So talk to me a little bit about what an audience member can expect to hear at a typical uh, concert. I mean, it's it's you say it's not going to be Haydn's creation. Or, or even a John Rutter cantata or, or anything like that. You will get one or two of those selections just to show off the fact that we are still a choral ensemble. Right, yeah, 
yelling. But you'll only get it in the fall slash winter concert, the holiday concert. Okay. You only get in the first half of the holiday concert. Going back to the idea of big gay sing in the spring, um, you know, it's pop, it's Kesha, it's it's stuff that you hear. It's Alicia Keys sometimes. uh, Beyonce. Well, only recently, (laughs) only as of this year, which leads me back to the other question that I wanted to go back to about um, feeling included and things like this. Because the big gay sing is almost, I I would probably call it our centerpiece for the year. Yeah. Um, it's a very well attended concert. Always sells out. Uh, because it's like choral arrangements of pop music, um, and they usually follow a theme. One year it was movie music. Uh, one year it was music that you would hear in the club through the ages. So we had Martha Wash, the original Weather Lady, Weather Girl. Yeah, Weather Girl. Um, yeah. Weather we saying it's raining men, and had an interview with her. Uh, one year it was New York centric, so it featured all New York artists. But this oh. is pop music again, um, and because we had done so many, or I'd been in the chorus and I had done five big gay sings. Around the third one, I was like, "Well, gee, we never do any black music." And so I, my friend Damon and I, put together um, a list of our dream songs, and they all just happen to be black artists. And I'm proud to say that leadership took that idea. And in 2019, this spring, we did Big Gay Sing Body and Soul, which featured all black artists um, and was very well received by the audience um, and loved by the chorus. And there wasn't a low point in the concert. We did Anita Baker, Sweet Love. We did three Beyonce songs. We did John Legend, Rihanna. We did Ella Fitzgerald. So it was just really an experience for me. And so when we talk about... And that sounds like a diverse lineup to me. Well, you know, I Anita mean, Baker, Ella Fitzgerald, but also Beyonce. And I Rihanna. mean, the diversity of blackness. Who would have thought, right? Yeah, I mean, the people <laughs> and that's that don't a, know. And, and that's its own conversation. <laughs> it you know? certainly is. But um, so definitely in the pipeline. I want to also because I know where that question came up from. I know where that question came from. Uh, it's I know that you've seen other gay men's choruses, and they look pretty white. And I they mean, look pretty that's white. all I can really say about it. And the and the work that I'm doing in the New York City gay men's chorus to bring recognition to people of color. It is, um, you know, it is a fight. It is exhausting at times. And then we go to the gala event, which is once every four years. I call it the Queer Choir Olympics. The last (laughs) one was in Denver in 2016. And I look at the other courses that gather there at this Queer Olympics, this Queer Choir Olympics, and I say, oh my goodness, as much as I'm stressing out over the lack of POC awareness in the New York City Gay Men's Chorus, we are leaps and bounds ahead of the rest of the organization. So, so you're saying as frustrated and as exhausted as you are with it sometimes, you're in a better situation we than most. We are in a far better situation than 99%. Like, other than maybe Los Angeles. Yeah. Like, which has, you know, is still pretty white. Why do you Why do you think that's the case, though? I mean, the, gay people come in all colors. So sure. so why are why are these choruses not representative of that? From your perspective. Uh, Well, because, you know, even if you are a person of color that gets into this largely white organization because you grew up being a chorister or loving choral music, you might find that once you get into that very social setting that either... And this is just a problem. This is not just the choral white. This is not the choral gay movement. This this is is, just life. This is gay clubs. This this is gay 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 everything. This is gay sports leagues. This is just gayness. Um you might not feel like you belong. Uh, you, and that's for a whole host of reasons, whether it's, you know, just not initially meshing with people or people objectifying you or, you know, getting 
be like or tokenizing not, or tokenizing you, yeah. or microaggression or whatever and so you know thankfully and there's an article about this and the work that we've done in the New York City gay men's courses that we've developed an inclusion and equity initiative uh, which has now become recognized as a team after two years to really keep the entire organization aware um, of being equitable of being inclusive um, and being able to help educate and remind people to always use correct language um, and not just with you know issues of race but accessibility handicappedness uh, ableism um, uh, with regard to age uh, and just all different levels of accessibility right and so it's really important to have that um, that peace in 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 that very white space yeah yeah so how can um how can people find out more about um this ensemble or their local ensembles because you, you mentioned they're dotted all over the country certainly well if you want to find out more about the new york city gay men's course you can go to nycgmc.org if you want to find out more about gala choruses you can go to galachoruses.org uh, and I think they must have a directory um, that you can look up that way. And they're, again, dotted all over at least, well, I know all over the world, um, but specifically in the United States, you know, you'll, you never know um, where one might reside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and we, we, we've spent um, a lot of our time talking about, you know, the, the, this chorus and the, and the works and the initiatives that you're doing within it, but... Um, before you go, could you just tell us a little bit about um, yourself? You know, when you're when you're not singing with this ensemble, what what else are you doing? What are what are some of your other interests, and and how can people find out more about those? Oh, certainly. Well, all over the internet, you can just Google me. Uh, <laughs> you're all over the internet. I'm all over the internet. I go by the screen name Blasian FMA. And, and quickly tell us why, about that. Well, I am black and Asian, and I am a part of Phi Mu Alpha Symphonia Fraternity, founded in 1898. Um, and a lot of people always mistake that for Full Metal Alchemist, which it's not. But <laughs> which is a great anime. Which is a by great the way. anime, and I have not watched it, but I do love anime. Um, and so um, a lot of my work prior to focusing on queer people of color, whether it was this QPOC life or even as far back as education, um, a through line for me has always been to bring awareness to Blasian people or Black Asian people. I'm half Black, half Filipino. Um, I consider myself 100% of both, uh, grew up in Southern California, military family, uh, and so my early online career uh, was dedicated to doing shorts and videos and skits and vlogs talking about that experience, hmm. uh, something that not everybody, like a lot of people know about, you know, mixed race experience, and it's usually just black-white, but something as rare as black-Asian it's there's definitely something interesting there at the intersection of that identity. So again, you're all over the internet, Blasian FMA. Yes. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Garrett. Jonathan Gibbs in conversation with Garrett McQueen here on Triloquy. Yes, it was a really great conversation. Even as uh, someone from the LGBTQIA community, you know, I learned a lot and thought about a few things in a different way than I was used to thinking about them. So hopefully, um, Scott, you got something out of that as as one of our straight allies. I did. I did. Uh, especially the fact that he was pointing out that there are still some inadequacies that need to be addressed in 
uh, a lot of these LGBTQIA ensembles. Yeah. So, yeah. And plus he brought up Martha Wash. Yeah. So <laughs> and, and what did you say was your jam for Martha Wash? Well, here? let's go all the way back to the Weather Girls, right? <laughs> right. But where I first learned about her was through Everybody, Everybody by Black Box, because she did the voice on that. And that was the song that I learned to do the electric slide to. And as <laughs> you'll, now, you'll, you'll have to show me later. As a white boy <laughs> that had, did not. I had a trouble finding the beat and staying on it. That was <laughs> that was a monumental thing where, where like I made it through the whole song doing you, the electric side. You, you you finally did it. I that finally that, did that it. first time you made it all the way through, you know, no real no slip ups, no stumbling no, over. And you now, feel like you made it. And now I do spin moves <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> okay, I can't wait to I can't <laughs> wait till we're somewhere where the electric slide is happening. I want to see all of your all of your variations Why wait? on it. I will make it happen. <laughs> okay, well, but b- b- before we go, I did want to uh, pull up the uh, the quote that Jonathan was trying to draw up during our conversation. It's a quote from a guy named Marcus, um, Marcus Sychenko. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And he said, I think it's important for people to know that the gay choral movement wasn't started so we could sing I am what I am in four part harmony. Our friends were dying. We had no political power. They all wanted us dead. We sang to give strength to our friends, to demand medicine, research, any kind of humanitarian aid. We changed the world with our voices. And I think organizations like that, as they continue to think about how they're going to evolve and be even more equitable, um, you know, using their voices to affect change is, you know, all the more important and something that we all should do in every way we can. Let's talk about what's coming up next time. Yeah, so um, the other person I interviewed uh, while visiting New York was my homie Pete, Pete Collin, a friend of mine from Memphis. Uh, He was a star trombonist uh, when we were kids. Uh, He went on to return to the high school he graduated from to be a band director and choral director. And from there, he transitioned into the world of law, where he uh, practices law and and teaches um, brass uh, part-time in New York City. So uh, we'll get into that, his story, and um, lots of really interesting things uh, coming from him as well. So I can't wait to, to share my story and my interview with Pete with you all. <laughs>